Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain, inspire, and inform you about all things running. I'm Brian Dalek, one of the producers of the show, and I'll be your host this week. Coming up, an interview with elite marathoner Diego Estrada. Then, in the kick, a recap of the 2017 USA Outdoor Track and Field Championships, including a mom of three who came out of nowhere to make the world's team in the 1500 meters. But first, a quiz. We here at Runner's World are supposed to be experts on running terminology. Maybe we are, maybe we aren't. We rounded up a few of our colleagues and turned our job into a game. Who here really knows what they're talking about? Karen, that was pretty bad. <laughs> oh, no. I'm a little bit embarrassed for you, I gotta say. Oh no! I know that you know these things. I, I know. think you're just a little bit nervous. Probably. You'll find out soon enough. Thanks for joining us. One of the most searched stories every year on runnersworld.com is our guide to common running terms, and for good reason. There's a lot of jargon out there that's hard for both newbies and dedicated runners to grasp and remember. To highlight just how tough it can be to keep track of all of this stuff, we created a little quiz, really a mini game show. Our site director, Chris Kraft, and training editor, Megan Keita, picked out a few terms we often use in the magazine or here on this podcast. Then we brought a few of our staffers into the studio to see if they truly know the meaning behind the words and phrases we use all the time. I'm joined here with our training editor, Megan Keita. Hey, Megan. Hey, Chris. And we want to see if our very own Runner's World staff has the exact definitions for common running terms. We're going to bring in three of our staffers, one at a time, and I'll ask them to define five different terms each. They'll have 45 seconds to define all five. Um, if, they, if they don't know something, they can pass and come back to it. After the round, Megan will act as our judge to see if their definition is in the ballpark of being right. And then whoever has the most correct answers will get something from our amazing golden shoe box. So Megan, you have the list in front of you. How do you think they're gonna do? I don't know, Chris. Some of these are pretty tough. I'm the training editor. I've been here for six years now and I don't even know some of these off the top of my head. So, you know, if, if people know these better than I do, I might be out of a job. Okay, and so they haven't, they don't know what we're gonna ask them. They haven't been studying these, these terms or anything like that. So they're coming in, they know that there's gonna be a quiz, but they don't know um, what the quiz is gonna be about. So without waiting anymore, let's jump right in uh, with our first contestant. Contestant number one is Karen Mathis. Welcome, Karen. Hey. So <laughs> if you could please just uh, tell us what you do for Runner's World and how long you've been running. I'm a designer for the magazine, and I've been running a little over eight years. Okay, very good. Yep. So you've been briefed on the rules, right? Yes. And and you, and beforehand, you didn't know what you were getting into. I did not. <laughs> so how do you think you're going to do? I don't know. I'm a little bit nervous. I hope my running knowledge is better than I think it's going to be. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to find out. Right. Um, so we're going to put 45 seconds on the clock. Uh, it will begin after I finish saying the first term. Okay. okay. Ready? Yes. Okay. Here we go. Negative splits. Um, miles run shorter than the previous. Single track. A one lane track. DFL. Did not finish. Okay, supination. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna pass. <laughs> pass on supination. Glycogen. Um, energy levels in your body that affect performance. They can run low or high. Okay, you wanna <laughs> go back to supination? Oh my gosh. Sounds like a 70s song. <laughs> okay, that's 45 seconds, you're out of time. Judge Megan, how did Karen do? Karen, that was pretty bad. <laughs> oh, no. I'm a little bit embarrassed for you, I gotta say. Oh no! I know that you know these things. I, I know. think you're just a little bit nervous. Probably. And, See, this made us all look bad. <laughs> Ouch. This was my worst fear. 
<laughs> Karen, you were closest with glycogen, which is actually the form of carbohydrates that is stored in your muscles and liver and is right. converted to glucose for energy during exercise. You were correct right. that glycogen can be <laughs> high or low. <laughs> So, That's quarter good. of a point to you for that one. Great, great. No points for the rest. Uh, oh negative splits is when you run the second half of a race faster than the first uh, half. I know you know this. Oh, bad. I broke it down <laughs> too much. Single track is a trail running term, referring oh. to a course that is only wide enough to allow one runner at a time. Okay. Uh, DFL, dead last. Oh, my gosh. I thought I heard an F in there. Oh, man, I failed. There is an F in there. I mean, like, last, I thought there was, like, an F at the end or something. Like, I think I heard it wrong. Darn. You heard DNF. There's no excuses for me. That's right. (laughs) And supination, which I would not have known either, is the insufficient inward roll of the foot after landing. Yeah, what is this? The opposite of overpronation is supination. Okay. Most people overpronate. I've learned so, so much today. Yeah. Now you know all the things. <laughs> and you were first, so that's harder. <laughs> right. And and so the good news, Karen, is that you're you're in the lead with, oh, a, great. with a quarter point. Or I'm going to be the term that I got wrong, dead last. <laughs> there we go. Okay, contestant number two, Derek Call. Hey, Derek. How you doing, Chris? I'm good. How are you? Living the dream over here. So um, tell us a little bit about what you do at Runner's World and how long you've been running. I am the junior video producer at Runner's World. I make all the shoe reviews, workouts, all the fun stuff you see on our website, on our social channels. Um, And I personally have been running since I was like 9 or 10 years old, so around 20 years. Very good. Okay. So you've been briefed on the rules for this. You know what, what it's going to be about, but you haven't studied. You don't know what's, what's, you really don't know what's going on. All I know is I am in a recording studio and I'm on the wrong end of the microphone right now. Uh, we're going to put 45 seconds on the clock. The okay. clock will start when I finish saying the first term. Um, so uh, are you ready? I was born ready, Chris. All right. Let's do this. 10% rule. Okay, 10% rule. Never increase your mileage more than 10% when training. Cadence. Cadence, it's like the pattern of your feet hitting the ground. Tip top, tip top, left, right, left, right. Tempo run. Tempo run is when you go out at race pace or an accelerated pace for a set amount of time. IAAF. International Athletic Association. I forget what it stands for, but they are one of the governing bodies in track and field. Okay, lactate threshold. Oh, sorry. Uh, the 45 seconds is up. Can I at least say how that was my least favorite workout in college and that we had two guys nearly quit the team because they didn't like the coach that made us do lactate thresholds? No, you can't say that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Judge Megan, how did Derek do? I'm going to give Derek a total of three points. That is for two very close to correct answers and two about half correct answers. So let's go through the list here. Uh, 10% rule is, in fact, the rule where you're not supposed to increase your mileage by more than 10% from one week to the next. Uh, cadence, uh, it's the number of steps you take in a minute of running, specifically. Ah. So, um, pretty close. Uh, tempo run, this one I, I gave you, you, you said holding a accelerated pace for a given amount of time. Okay, the accelerated pace is about half marathon pace for most people. Um, it's a comfortably hard effort level. So... Um, And then the IAAF is the International Association of Athletics Federations. And you were correct that it is a governing body of running. Um, And then lactate thresholds, other than it being a workout that people hate, um, it is the exercise intensity at which the blood concentration of lactate and or lactic acid begins to exponentially increase. I wouldn't have used any of those words. (laughs) You, You wouldn't have used lactate? Well, maybe that. Yeah. 
Okay, so three points for Derek. Does that seem like a fair score? I might say he got 10% roll and cadence totally correct, and tempo run and IAAF half correct. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll live with that. So if this were a quiz about the Philadelphia Eagles, how, would you, how do you think you would have done? I would have done better, but right now the roster's at like 96. So get me three, four weeks into the season, um, and then I'll do better. Gotcha. This was the 2008 Philadelphia Phillies, 90% or higher. Very good. <laughs> Maybe we'll get back to you in the middle of football season then. All right, thank you. Okay, contestant number three, McGee Nall. Hi, McGee. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm great. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do here at Runner's World, and how long you've been running. Um, I am a summer intern here at Runner's World. I am doing digital content, and I have been here for about three weeks, and I'm having a blast. Um, and I have been running since I was about 12 years old in track awesome. in middle school. Well, we're, um, we're, we're lucky to have you. Um, so you know the rules. So you're going to have 45 seconds to define some running terms. Cool. Right? Um, how do you think you're going to do? Um, <laughs> I honestly don't know. Probably not well, but it's fine. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll say this. The bar is low. Okay. That's uh, encouraging. So are you ready? Yep. All right. We'll start the clock as soon as I, um, uh, as soon as I say the first, the first term. Ready? Yes. Ultra. A long distance race that is longer than 26 miles. Bandit. A person who does not pay for the race and does not have their own bib. Fartlick. <laughs> um, gosh. Um, pass. <laughs> Doms. D-O-M-S. Doms is another word for shoes. <laughs> VO2 max. I should know this one. Um, it's, it has to do with your energy level when you're running. Okay, do you want to go back to any any of them? Uh, nope. <laughs> oh, out of time anyway. Okay. Sorry. <sighs> Megan, Judge Megan, how did McGee do? Okay, so McGee <laughs> got two out of five right. She started off really strong. She got ultra pretty much correct, a race that's longer than a marathon. Uh, she got bandit correct, someone who runs a race without paying. Uh, that's when things got a little dicey for McGee. Um, fartlek, you don't know fartlek? I don't. Fartlek is Swedish for speed play. So it's basically a, a speed run, speed work run where you don't really have a plan. You might surge to that light post and then recover and then surge to that mailbox. Okay. Uh, DOMS is an acronym for delayed onset muscle soreness. Okay. Um, so you probably experienced it, even if you don't know what it means. Um, and VO2 max, this is the one I really wouldn't have known either, so don't feel bad. Um, it is a measurement of the maximum amount of oxygen that a person can consume per minute while exercising. Cool. Who knew? I'm who knew? <laughs> but fartlek is 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 probably the funnest running term to say, and and you can say it yeah. in mixed company. You can say it anywhere. So um, I'll use it from now on so all the now time. You learned something. There yeah. <laughs> Okay, so now we're going to bring everybody back in. We're going to bring in Karen and Derek and McGee and talk about the results and uh, see how everybody's feeling after going through the quiz. So all three are back in the room. This is the, uh, the very exciting moment when they find out who won. Um, actually, they're all winners. But um, Megan, go ahead and, and, and reveal the, the winners and the order. Okay. In third place, otherwise known as dead f last, we have Karen <laughs> with a quarter of a point. Yes. Good nice. work, Karen. Thanks, I worked so hard. <laughs> In second place, we have our intern, McGee. Yay. <laughs> and in first place, earning a reach into the golden shoebox is video guy, Derek Call. Derek. Do you want to say something? Well, as, as Chris said, we're all winners here today, and I do want to thank my competition. Um, they weren't in the room with me, but you know, I, I think we all fed off of each other's energy. Um, and more importantly, I just want to thank my brain for somehow remembering things about track, which normally it doesn't. 
So Derek, what are you going to do now? Well, probably just going to go home and play with my corgi, and then we'll put her to bed at 8.30, and she'll bark at 4.45 tomorrow morning and wake us up. That's celebration in the call household. That's awesome. When was the last time you won something, Derek? Um, I'm thinking I won tickets to the Warp Tour in 2002 through a radio contest. I won a turkey at a 5K that I'm almost positive was a 1.8-mile race in, like, 2011. <laughs> and That's not a 5K. No, but I won the turkey. And... I don't know. Otherwise, I've won the hearts of the staff of Runner's World. True. True that. <laughs> so this is your first victory since 2011 then, right? It's been six years since you've won anything. Uh, oh, no. In 2012, in 2012, I won a, a race called the Jog and Hog, where you run a mile, eat a quart of ice cream, and then run another mile. That, that does not surprise me at all. <laughs> Well, that wraps up our first Family Feud style Runner's World Show quiz. Um, I just want to thank our judge, Megan Keita. No problem. I love judging people. <laughs> and all of our contestants, McGee Nall, Karen Mathis, and our champion, Decal. That was our first ever in-studio quiz show with site director Chris Kraft and training editor Megan Keita. And we'd also like to thank the listener who gave us the idea for this very segment. She wrote in explaining to us that she didn't always understand a lot of the terms we throw around on the show. So we'll keep an ear out for that in future episodes as well. Diego Estrada was born in Mexico, but his mother carried him across the Rio Grande to the U.S. when he was just over a year old. He grew up in Salinas, California, and went to college at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, where he became a nine-time All-American in track and cross-country. He became a U.S. citizen in late 2011. That same year, he began eyeing the 2012 Olympic Games in London, and he desperately wanted to run for his new country but he misunderstood the rules around the waiting period for new citizens. So when his birthplace, Mexico, offered the dual citizen a chance to compete if he ran the A standard for the 10K, he decided to go for it, thinking it might be his only chance to be an Olympian. In London, Diego ran 28.36 under that Mexican flag, finishing in 21st place. As you'll hear, his Olympic experience wasn't quite what he dreamed. In 2015, Diego won the U.S. Half Marathon Championships in Houston, and it was his debut at the distance running a 60-51, the fastest time by an American that year. But in 2016, that year was a struggle for Diego. He tried to qualify for the Olympics in three events, the marathon, the 10K, and the 5K, and he missed the mark in all three. In the marathon trials, his first attempt at 26.2 miles, he suffered cramps in his hamstring and pulled out. He dropped out of the 10K as well, and in the 5K, he did better, but he still missed the team, placing 11th. Hoping to redeem himself, he targeted the Chicago Marathon last October. And although he ran a 213.56, placing 8th overall and was the first American finisher, that race, too, very nearly went south. Diego, who still lives and trains in Flagstaff, spoke with contributing producer Cindy Kuzma in Chicago this past March. They started their conversation talking about what happened last year in the Windy City. So, Diego, uh, it's good to see you here in Chicago again. And uh, you came to Chicago, I know, last year to run the marathon um, after some struggles at the Olympic Trials Marathon. And um, so Chicago was going to be your first full marathon. And I wondered if you could talk to me about uh, what your goal was and, and what your mindset was when you came here to Chicago in the fall. Yeah, coming into Chicago, the mindset that I had was, first, I wanted to finish a marathon. Second, I wanted to be competitive, and I wanted to finish as high as possible. So I set my own goal of running under 210, 
or finishing in the top three, top five, which I knew that it was a big goal, given the fact that I couldn't even finish my first attempt. But throughout the race, just things didn't work out, and I was left in the position where I either had to DNF or drop out on my second marathon and probably never run another marathon again. So fortunately, though, I was able to finish. Yeah, tell me about what happened. So around 10K, which six miles, as we all know, there's fluid stations for the elite athletes, and I'm not quite sure if it was the wind or another athlete's bottle was on, that fell on the ground next to the table. So as I'm reaching out for my bottle, I stepped I stepped on a water bottle, rolled my ankle pretty bad, and went to the ground. And then I had to get up and reassess what I wanted to do since I was 20 miles out. So I decided to just keep trying. And uh, fortunately, the lead pack was surging up and down that I managed to catch up to them again. Okay, so let's talk about this a little bit more. You fell at the 10K mark, got back up, uh, rejoined the lead pack, finished the race. Um, talk to me again a little bit more about that decision process, how, how you felt in that moment and how you ended up being able to pull through like that. Initially, when I went down, I quickly turned my head back and I realized that I had stepped on a water bottle. So I was really frustrated and all these negative emotions are going through my head and I just kind of just like talking to myself and realizing that maybe marathoning is not meant to be for me, that I should just drop out, go home and forget about it. But, you know, I just wanted to give it a shot. I just wanted to run the distance. I mean, as a high school kid, when I started running, I always wanted to be a marathoner. So I decided to pick myself up and try to finish. But throughout the race, I think there wasn't a single moment. Every mile I was second guessing my decision just because it just didn't feel right. I, I kept thinking and asking myself if, if it was worth it because I know that sometimes when you have an injury and you run through it, it could cause severe damage or permanent damage. So I, was just, I wasn't sure what the damage was, if there was any torn ligaments or anything broken, but I just knew that that might be my last shot at finishing a marathon. And why did you think that? Why do you think that if you had dropped out, you might not have run another marathon? I think as we all know, the marathon is this different beast that we all look at and we prepare months leading up to it we like all we can do is prepare for that day we train so hard so many emotions are invested so I, I don't think that I could have done another build-up for a marathon especially after going through the Olympic trials and dropping out at mile 20 and just I don't think emotionally I would have been in the right mind frame to try to attempt a third time I think two DNS would have been enough so you and I talked a little bit about this before, that you, uh, even during the race, had some GPS troubles and didn't even know exactly how close you were to the lead pack again once you, uh, once you continued the race. What did it feel like when you caught up to them, when you realized that you were actually still in the race? So when I caught them, it was a big emotional relief to know that I was still in the race. And my GPS was lying to me. It was just the Chicago buildings were throwing it off. So I thought I was running about 5.30 to 6 minute pace. But in reality, I was still having a good race. I was still running low five minute miles. So I guess in a way that the GPS helped me a lot because the pressure of running a time went out the window. And I was more focused on finishing. And my GPS was about, I had it on kilometers. So it was about 2 to 3K off at one point. So I just remember seeing mile 24 and thinking I was barely approaching mile 22, 23. So I don't know if... If I can explain it, it was more like like a boost, like you're almost there. So how did it feel to cross the finish line, and what happened when you did? So every time I finish a race, I'm either happy or upset, but I'm never emotional. It's just like I keep my emotions to myself. Like You can probably notice my, the frustration in my face once in a while, but that was the first time that I crossed the finish line, and I couldn't help it. I held it in, but for some reason I wanted to cry. And I don't know what it was, if it was the race itself, what I went through, or the fact that I had accomplished my dream of finishing a marathon. But that's the only time ever. Like, I mean, I've ran in the Olympics, I've qualified, but at no point in my career have I crossed the finish line with so much emotion. Now, you ended up running a 2.13.56, and you came in eighth, and you were the first American. Um, did... How did that feel when you crossed the finish line? I mean, were you proud? Were you just relieved? What what was going through your head? More than anything, it was just a big relief, knowing that I had finished the race. And my impression when I went down, it, it was in the park, so I didn't think anybody saw me fall. 
So in my mind, I'm thinking, nobody knows what I'm going through. So it's just a relief to actually finish the race without an excuse. But of course, as soon as I crossed the finish line, it was so dramatic. It's like all my adrenaline was gone. And all of a sudden, I couldn't stand on my own two feet. And I was asking for a wheelchair. And I'm just <laughs> thinking to myself, like, oh, so dramatic. But in reality, I just can't, couldn't take it anymore. The pain was a bit overwhelming. Are you still glad you made the decision that you did to finish? Yeah, I think that had I not made that decision, I'm not sure if I would have been able to convince myself to uh, not just run a marathon, but keep being involved, heavily involved in this sport. I think that finishing that marathon was a turning point just because the Olympic year was so much more stress than excitement going through the trials in February. And then you get to July and you run a 10K and again, I drop out. It's the, the only two times in my career that I've ever dropped out was at the Olympic trials. So you're second guessing your, yourself. Like maybe I just don't have the mental capacity to go through this. But in reality, then you look back and you know that you're dealing with so many injuries that year that are getting in the way. And the climate itself is just hot weather that's not helping you out at all. So basically, I come back and I run the 5K. I make the final and I'm trying to get myself excited that I have another chance at making the Olympic team. I finished dead last or third to last, maybe close enough. But, mm-hmm. you know, the whole year was just a bag of mixed emotions, second guessing my my career options and just honestly just thinking I should pack up and get a real job so finishing Chicago was like a big emotional relief and knowing that I ran 213 which in my eyes beforehand was not an impressive time now I have a lot of respect for people that run anything close to that so I just took a lot of motivation and inspiration to come back again and try to do it better so Let's go back, way back, actually. And uh, you mentioned that, you know, you started running in high school and that you always had these dreams of being a marathoner. Um, But could you talk to me a little bit about when and where you started running? So when I was a freshman in high school, I was part of the honors program and we were required to join a club or a sport. So I tried the other sports that were available and I wasn't so coordinated. So I got cut from football. Then after that, my only option was either cross country or join the student body. But a lot of my female classmates were doing that. So, I mean, it's sad, but being a Mexican boy, I just didn't feel right to just <laughs> take that route. So I took what I believed was an easy route to be part of the cross country team, which turned out to be hard. <laughs> and uh, that's how I started. It wasn't that I wanted to be a part of a sport. It was more that I wanted to get a decent education I guess so in order to be taking AP classes down the line I had to be a part of this program so I was forced to join cross-country. And when did you realize that you might actually be good at it? So my sophomore year I remember my freshman year I ran the 3200 back in California which is roughly two miles and I ran 1002 which was pretty good for our, our area our school record at the time was 932 for the two miles so My sophomore year, when I was coming into the season, my goal was to try to break that record, and I ended up running 919. So I decided, at that point, I made the realization that I could actually be good at this, but never in my mind did it cross my mind that I could run in college or even be a professional athlete. The the thought of running professionally honestly did not come till 2012, 2013. Tell me when, when that kind of sunk in. What can you set the scene? Was there one particular race, one particular performance, or was it just kind of building over time that you thought, hey, this, this might actually work out? Yeah, my times were not as good as the rest of the kids around the area in California. I ran a 420 mile, but I had a coach that was super persistent trying to get me to college. And I myself didn't really want that. I wanted to stay close to my family, but he was the one that pushed me to take a recruiting visit to Northern Arizona. So once I was there, I met Jack Daniels, and at the time, there was an article in one of the running magazines that, about uh, Jack Daniels and why it's so important to live high, train low, and he mentioned the importance of Flagstaff, how professional runners actually pay money to do training camps in Flagstaff. So it was at that point that I made the realization that, hey, they're offering me a partial scholarship to come to this university where professional athletes train. So it was at that point that I realized that, okay, maybe this is for me, and not necessarily just the education, but maybe there's a 1% chance even of having a career out of this. Again, not that I believe I could do it, but I figured if professional athletes are paying to be there and I'm getting paid 
a small amount to be there, that's got to be saying something. Okay, so it was more like sort of other people's faith in you that, that convinced you that it might be a route worth taking? Yeah, unfortunately, I'm very hard on myself most of the time, so I wasn't giving myself any credit. I don't think I I really gave myself any credit till I made the Olympic team for my native country back in 2012. When I ran the, the 10K, when I ran 27.32, that was the first time where I was actually happy with my running performances. Let's talk about your your native country, your history. Um, can you tell me where you were born and, and how you first came to this country? I was born in uh, Mexico, a small village, I think. It's about 200, 300 people. It's just a tiny village up in the mountains. And my dad was coming uh, to the U.S. part of the Reagan amnesty, and he was working. So the, about the time I was born, he decided that he couldn't provide for the family anymore. So it was a combination of him needing my mom to also provide for the family and the desire for his kids to have a better life. Because back home, you know, my parents only went to third grade. And it's because the education system where we lived was not great and the resources weren't there and the medical resources weren't that good at the time. So it was just a family decision that we needed to pursue a better life in general for our health, for future, for just so many reasons. So when I was 13, my mom and dad decided to pack our bags and dad came over to the U.S. legally and we had to take the conscious decision that we were gonna take a gamble and cross the border. So my mom, that's why probably one of the reasons why I love my family so much. My mom decided that even though I was a child, she wasn't going to leave me behind, so she carried me across through all that journey, desert, water, and even the border. So that's how I found my way in the U.S. Did your mom talk to you about it a lot as you were growing up, how you got here? Yeah, growing up, I didn't hear much. I was under the impression that I was American. I knew that I was a Mexican child, but I didn't quite know the details till I was maybe a teenager and then I realized that we actually immigrated through the border. You see movies, you hear stories and it almost seems impossible for somebody to cross that border but hearing my mom actually tell me that she carried me in her arms just really put things into perspective because that's from what I've been told my dad, my mom and my siblings it was a very interesting and there were so many risk factors in there and so my mom needed to be constantly active and to know that she was carrying me, she didn't have both hands, I know that she probably had a tougher journey than most people. Wow, so you didn't even know all that until you were a teenager? I mean, I started kind of grasping the idea that I was not legal because we were going through all the immigration process of becoming a resident, but it didn't quite, I didn't quite do the math that I was actually part of the U.S. system. How did you first hear that story then? I mean, did you uh, just start to get curious as you got older and started asking your mom more questions? Or um, how, do you, you know, remember how it was that she first gave you the full picture of, of the kind of sacrifices she made and the kind of journey you had? I think that I o always overlooked it. I just knew the basics. But when I made the Olympic team in 2012, I think we were driving back from uh, Stanford and I was running on a tatch. I was uh, redshirting that season for Northern Arizona. And on the way back, that was the first time she actually, I could tell she was very emotional, her and my dad. And they started telling me about that journey and she was just saying how proud she was in a sense that she felt that for me, she was, it was like validation of her, of her struggle, of her journey, seeing me living my dream. Wow, that's incredible. So tell me then about when and how you decided to become a citizen. In 2012, I wanted to compete in the Olympic trials. And I was a college kid, so there was some information that was kind of being provided for my, to my college coach. And the information was basically stating that unless I was eligible to represent the U.S. at the Olympics at an international level, I would not be eligible to compete at the Olympic trials. So that was the first moment where... I realized that I didn't belong to this system because being a part of the high school system and NCAA system, it's almost, you don't really think twice that you don't belong to that American system. So that was the point that around uh, late 2011, that it was the red flag that I needed to start working on my immigration process. And that took about six months. And during that period, I remember losing sleep over it, thinking that 
I wasn't going to be able to represent the U.S. So around that time, I'm just disappointed. I'm finally an American citizen, but it feels like my opportunity, I'm not even going to have a shot to compete at the trials, is taken away from me. And that's around the time that uh, the Mexican Federation reached out to me and opened the door to go to the Olympics. And I didn't think I could be an, uh, a professional athlete, so I figured that was my one shot to go to the Olympics. And afterwards, I would get a job and just live a normal life. So I took the opportunity, and I ran for them uh, in London. Yeah. What was that experience like? Honestly, it, I, my only regret is that I did not enjoy it. There was too many outside factors that I allowed to get in the way. I think the fact that I was living in the U.S. and I felt as an American representing Mexico, I let a lot of that emotionally impact me. So it was almost, I felt, I do love my culture, but I almost felt like I was betraying my country. And I remember walking out of the tunnel with the American athletes and by my side, and I just wished I was on their team. And I... It's weird because my uniform was supposed to be something special, but I wanted to have their uniform. So by betraying your country, you mean the United States? Right. How did your family react to you running for Mexico? My siblings in general, my sisters, my brother, and my mom were super supportive. But my dad had a bit of a mixed review. Just His point of view is, we've worked so hard to come to this country. Why are we going backwards? So I could understand what he meant, but... Yeah, I don't think he was too excited about it. How do you feel about it now, looking back? I mean, I see it as an accomplishment in terms of an athletic career. I've reached the Olympics. Whatever happens now, I can be an Olympian. But I don't know why I'm this type of person that is so hard or on myself. And I just, I don't know why I dwell on it that, yes, I've made an Olympic team, but I still don't feel like an Olympian because I haven't made an Olympic team for the U.S., so it's like I'm watching the Olympics, part of it, because it, it wasn't that easy to watch. And uh, my girlfriend is telling me, like, oh, man, remember when we went to London? She was in the stadium watching. Remember you were there? Wasn't that awesome? And I'm just, to me, it's almost like a dream. Not a dream. It's just like a fantasy that never happened. Like, I don't think I lived in that moment or it wasn't a, what I imagined it to be. I didn't take advantage of that moment that I feel like it got away. And... To me, it's almost non-existent. It's more like I watched the movie. If it, I know I'm hard on myself, and most people would be proud to be an Olympian, but I think just the outside factors at the time, I was 22 years old, and I let them get in the way. Yeah. So let's go back to your, your citizenship. What year was it that you swore your oath? Uh, I still remember the day, November 18, 2011. What was that day like? It was emotional. It was... I mean, it's hard to explain. It's like I've always felt that I belong to this country, but that officially, legally, that was the day that I was actually an American citizen, even though I've always felt as an American, it was the first day that the world actually recognized me as one. So, yeah, I got a little emotional. I mean, I'm not one to cry. It's just not in my DNA. But, yeah, I think I was pretty choked up that day. It's funny because... Uh, one of my ex-teammates were from the same section in California. He went to Northern Arizona for a year or two, and then he transferred to ASU. Darius Terry, he's an All-American in the 1500. He lived down there, so I drove down. I stayed at his house, and Darius was supposed to go with me because it was down in Phoenix, so my family couldn't go. That's about roughly 800 miles from home. So Darius was supposed to go with me. We get to the office, and Darius doesn't have his ID card, but his girlfriend does. So it's his girlfriend, who, whom I've known for a few months, is the only person in the room trying to support me going through that uh -huh. moment. And I'm surrounded by tons of uh, immigrants becoming citizens. Everybody's crying, and she's there, and I'm just kind of like, all right. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Thanks for being here. <laughs> so that was your senior year. Um, how did you get from there to pro running? So... A good friend of mine in Flagstaff, Celia Rodriguez, who ran for Adam State and then was part of the McMillan running group, he uh, put me in contact with Coach Bijo around 2010. And he was the one that, in a way, kind of put me in contact with ASICS because he worked with ASICS. And Coach Vigil, this is Coach Joe Vigil, who's um, 
pretty well known in the running community to say the least. He coached Dina Castor um, and coaches Olympian Brenda Martinez as well. Um, how would you describe him to, to people who don't know him? As a coach, he's just very professional and intelligent, and as a person, he's very caring. I, I see him as a father figure slash grandparent. He's just, it's easy to go to him when I'm in trouble or when I'm going through a hard time, whether it's a, as an athlete or as a person. I do most of my training alone, and I'm alone most of the time, but I don't feel alone because he calls me two to three times a week, and he lives down in Tucson, Arizona, which is about a four, five-hour drive, but I don't mind it because I know that he's constantly thinking of me, and everything he does is individually based for me, and I know he only wants me to succeed, so uh, I'll be honest, I had to beg mm -hmm. for him to work with me. What do you think it was that, that convinced him? He claims that it was my perseverance, that he was not open to the idea, but I kept making phone calls. He kept turning me down, and I was consistently reaching out to him, just not crying on the phone, but just begging him to be there for me. How many times do you think you called him? Three months towards the end of it. I remember he called me, and he talked to so many people. He addressed me by a different name. I remember after that conversation, I told uh, my girlfriend, Caroline, I was like, Okay, I'm done. I'm not going to reach out to him anymore. Like, I get it. He doesn't want to work for me or with me. And then two, three weeks later, I guess I stopped bugging him. He calls me out of the blue and he says, hey, uh, do you have a fax machine? I'm like, no. I want to send you a fax. I made up some workouts for you. <laughs> <laughs> so he faxed my sister and that's when, uh, that's, this is around December 2012. He, t he jokes with me that People are calling him all the time, trying to get his attention, and I'm the only person that he can leave that at least three to five voicemails and doesn't get back to him, so, <laughs> oops. Where do you think that comes from for you, that drive to work so hard? It's funny because I can't pinpoint it, I can't put anything on it, and it's probably got to do a lot with the way I was raised, seeing my parents come from my dad being a brick maker, tw making $20, $30 a week to support his family, to now owning his home, owning multiple cars, having a not a luxury lifestyle, but a very good American lifestyle. And I think just seeing the way they came up from being poor to being middle class, in a way it's ingrained in my head that hard work pays off. And it's just weird because I'm just, I have an obsessive personality with when I find something that I really like. Like when I was a kid, I got into collecting cards and I just wanted to collect them all and I couldn't stop. So it's, sometimes it's a bad thing because I get so into it. But when it comes to running, that's like, it's, it might sound unhealthy, but that's my obsession. That's all I want to do. Mm -hmm. And I don't just want to do it to be a part of it. I want to be the best, which is so difficult when you can't even finish a race at the most important stage. And what... Uh Talk to me a little bit more about why it was so important to you to make an Olympic team. I think I just wanted validation. I just wanted to know that I belong with in this system, that I was part of America. I feel that when I'm older, if I'm blessed enough to have grandkids, I want them to look back at their grandfather and know that he represented the U.S. In a way, if I'm able to accomplish that as an athlete, I've accomplished academically receiving a degree as an immigrant, so I've broken down the barrier that there's more that we can achieve as immigrants, for at least for my family. But I also want to show them that we can pursue our dreams and persevere and you know, become Olympians or whatever you're, you're after, whatever your dream is, it's achievable. It's out there for you to get it. You just have to put in the work and truly, truly believe in yourself. Right, and I know we talked before that you, you speak frequently with your nephews and with other kids who are immigrants or, or first generation. Um, what do you hope that your success shows them? What do these conversations, how do these conversations go, especially in, a, in this kind of political climate we're in today? I think if anything, not even related to running, if they can just see that somebody that can relate to them, an immigrant child can leave his hometown and see the world, travel to Europe and explore different surroundings and that we're not tied down to our little micro environment. There's more to this life than we see. There's things we see on movies, TV, that we think are not part of our lifestyle. We grow up, as far as I'm concerned, 
the immigrant child grows up thinking of his family first and wants to provide. We don't see college. We don't see different opportunities out there. We see that as a luxury. But it's important to know that you can achieve those luxuries and still be part of your, be involved heavily in your family's life and impact them and support them along the way. And how does that play out for you? How, how do your parents feel about your running and your success, kind of setting aside the issue of running for Mexico, but just overall, you mentioned your mom being really proud of you. Um, how, how do they talk about your running and how do they support you on a regular basis? They go to most of my races that are nearby in California. My, they actually made a long drive. They wanted to take a road trip and went out to the Boulder Boulder. Mm. So it's just, they support me as much as they can. I talk to my mom daily and I text my sisters. We have a big group message with my mom and my sisters. So I'm always in contact with them. I know they always support me. When I'm going through a hard time, I get about two to three text messages from different siblings a day telling me to just stay positive, that it's going to work out. We're part of a very strong Catholic family. So there's always that faith in there that they kind of remind me not to give up. And do you think that that's maybe extra important to you because you you do train on your own to have that um, support system outside of running too? Yeah, I never feel alone. Even though it's just a phone call, I always feel like I'm surrounded by family members, by people who love me. Probably the one person that I see 90% of the week is my girlfriend Caroline and she jokes with me that I'm not really outgoing. She has her friends and I just stay at home. But I don't feel alone. I have coached my family and her, so that's enough for me. I mean, as a as, as an athlete, you want to be focused and you also don't want to be too consumed with your work. But for me, it's there's nothing wrong with just being home alone. Now, you also have some other friends at home, right? And another training partner that runs with you sometimes? Yeah, I have my Husky. His name is Lobo, and he probably gets in 30 to 50 miles a week. He, if, if anybody's obsessed with the sport, it's him. He will sit by the door and cry and howl trying to get a run in. <laughs> he will bump me. As soon as I touch my running shoes, he will go point at his leash, and if I'm not doing it, he'll bump me with his nose, put his paw on top of me. If I'm taking a nap and that double is coming up, he won't hesitate to pull the covers off. And he knows paces, too. Like, if I have a really easy run, he's really good with running by my side. And if I'm going more at a quicker pace, more like 6-minute pace, 5.30 pace, he can do that, too. And he's so good at it that he doesn't trip me up. I don't let him off the leash because Flagstaff has so much wildlife. I don't want him chasing a squirrel or getting hit by a car. But he's pretty good at changing paces. And you have a couple other animals at home, too, right? Not Maybe not quite as athletic. <laughs> no, no. I have a 6-pound toy or miniature poodle mix. He's part uh, uh, fox terrier, part poodle, and he's in charge of the naps. He sleeps with me and he naps with me every day. He's like my little lap dog. He's probably the most loyal being in this world to me. So he keeps me happy. He's my companion when it comes to relaxing. And then I have a 13-pound Himalayan cat, and he just gives me something to laugh at. Sometimes he'll be sitting in his little tree, he'll fall asleep, and he'll just fly off like five feet to the ground in his napping position all you hear is <laughs> so he, he makes the day funny <laughs> that was contributing producer cindy kuzma's conversation with elite marathoner diego estrada All right, and now it is time for The Kick. I'm joined this week by contributing editor Aaron Strout. We actually had Aaron at the USA Outdoor Track and Field Championships this past weekend in Sacramento, California. Aaron, you were talking on Monday right after all this ended. I know you're home back in Flagstaff. How, how was the trip back home after a, a very hot weekend in Sacramento? The trip home was great. I took a very early morning flight so that I could have the day here and enjoy the much cooler temperatures in the mountains. <laughs> yeah, so just on the heat, um, going in, they knew that in Sacramento it was going to be triple digits going into a long weekend of racing on the track. How, how did they deal with the conditions, both from the events perspective and how did the runners deal with it? Like, How did they approach it differently? Well, I think, well, obviously, it was ridiculously warm. When I arrived, uh, the first day of competition on Thursday, they had a thermometer, like, in the middle of the field, and it said 111 when oh, I got there. 
perfect yeah. perfect running weather. Yeah, ideal conditions, really. Um, so the elements obviously played a big role in how the athletes had to approach their race strategies. And I think, you know, you saw everybody was like using every gadget imaginable, but mm -hmm. um, most runners were walking around using ice vests before and after their races to keep their core body temperatures down. Mm -hmm. And a lot of runners in their post-race interviews said that the heat was definitely a factor in their strategy, too. I mean, obviously, a few athletes actually said um, that, you know, they were prepared for the heat. But um, there were a few that said that it was also kind of windy and breezy out there, and they mm -hmm. kind of weren't expecting that part of it. So. I think overall, you know, if it's if it's going to be 111 degrees and it's also a little breezy, it kind yeah. of feels like you're running right into like I don't know yeah. a hair dryer. Or yeah, yeah. So they they had their mindset on one terrible weather factor, and then another one just came out of nowhere and made it even exactly. worse. Um, yeah. Okay, so moving on from that, I know you survived. You're probably still sweating a little bit from the entire warm weekend, but let's talk about the most interesting stories that came out of the weekend. And we can actually start on Thursday night with a very emotional um, early round heat of the 1500s on the women's side. Right. So Gabe Grunewald, um, she's currently going through chemotherapy for her fourth bout of cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, she raced the 1500 meters in that opening round on Thursday and everybody's just been really inspired by her grit and her determination to keep running while she's living with cancer. Mm -hmm. And, um, in a really touching moment, she received a huge ovation from the fans in the stands. And after the race was over, the women all in her race kind of huddled together with her off, like right on the track at the finish line. And they just were offering her support and prayers. And it was just super emotional. And I know that everybody is really just pulling for Gabe. Um, and it was nice to see that her competitors are as well. Yeah. And you were able to speak with her after the race. Um, did she talk about, you know, what was kind of going through her head during the race and what happened right afterward? Yeah, she, uh, you know, she really wanted to be able to race the national championship. She said that, you know, of course, she's been kind of using running as a stabilizing force in her life right now, while so many other things are uncertain. And just to, even though she, she wasn't able to physically do so well, um, you know, her her standards are very high, obviously. Um, but she was just really happy to be there. And she knew sort of from the gun that it she wasn't going to be able to do much with her performance, but um, she was really touched by just all the support she was getting. And especially she said, you know, she called the other runners in her heat um, and within the running community, just kind of a sisterhood of support. And she was really touched by what they did. Sticking with the women's 15, when we actually got to the finals later in the weekend, there was another story that kind of popped out of there. Um, Jenny Simpson beat Kate Grace in that race, but it was third place that really stood out. It was. So Sarah Vaughn um, came out of nowhere, sort of, uh, and snagged third place from the 1500 meters to make the world team. And, 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 um, and yeah, that's the name a lot of people. I honestly didn't really know who Sarah Vaughn was before this weekend. Um, what is it about her? So Sarah has been around forever, I feel like, but she's never really... Um, popped out on you know in such a, a a grand way this is kind of a breakthrough for her mm -hmm. and what makes that interesting is that you know she wasn't picked as a favorite to make the world team um but she's a 31 year old mom of three girls uh she also works as a real estate agent so a lot of the pros that make these teams are not working other jobs and they're not being mom to three kids and so that makes her story really unique. And I think that was actually one of my favorite moments of the weekend. I happened to be standing very close to the finish line. I got to see her finish, but her reaction, just pure shock that she had just <laughs> made the world team uh -huh. was priceless. It was, I've never seen somebody so ecstatic to at, at their performance. It was really fun to see. We'll play a clip from that now of kind of her experience of uh, capturing that third place finish in the 1500. I still enjoy this sport and it still brings me a lot of joy and that's what I tried to focus on and I, you know being in it with 200 to go I just decided like it's now or never it's my turn I'm gonna try put myself in it and um, 
I don't really know what happened the last 150, but uh, I just know I was trying really, really hard. Okay, so... Again, congratulations to Sarah Vaughn for making the world's team in the 1500s. And um, and actually, I didn't realize we we had a lot of storylines coming out of the 1500s. But on the men's side, on Saturday, a race I was able to actually catch. I was taking a little bit of a break this weekend, but it was inside from the beach watching the 1500s on Saturday. Matthew Centrowitz was the overwhelming favorite, being the gold medalist from the Olympics last year. Um, but it wasn't his day. It was a, a big day for another runner in that event. That's right. Robbie Andrews took the win, and he was really excited about that, too. He and uh, Centrowitz have been battling it out for many, many years. Um, and usually it's Centrowitz that comes out on top. Um and so it was a really special race for Robbie. He was really excited. He still needs to run the world championship standard to claim his spot on the team. Right. That's really it, interesting, right? Yeah. So he won the race, but he's not an auto qualifier into the the world championships until he runs that standard. But he has till July 23rd to do it. It's a 336 and he, it's well within his capabilities. Um, and he has a few races on his on his schedule. So I think he'll be able to do it. I don't think that's a question. So he has to hit that qualifying standard of 336. You think he's going to get there um, with a couple meets left um, coming up on his schedule. But just for perspective, here in the USA, that was not his time. Tell everybody what the winning time was. It was a 343.29. So people might be wondering why necessarily they wouldn't be close to that standard in a big meet like this. Any, What insight can you give on why that would be the case? One might be the heat. Right. So I think in the heat, um, a lot of people just didn't want to. I mean, Ben Blankenship, uh, who was also competing in the in the race, sort of took it out and strung it out a little bit. But um, I don't think anybody really wanted to take a risk in the heat. Yeah. Um, and also you see in championship races like this one, a lot of strategy, um, which typically makes it a lot slower. Um, people will hold back and, and rely on their fast kicks in the home stretch to claim their spots. Yeah, and that's really what helped Robbie Andrews. So he took first, Central with second, John Gregoric was third. He he just beat out Craig Engels, and no one understood why I was yelling, go mullet for Craig Engels um, in my uh, in the house I was at on, on my weekend trip. Um, but Craig Engels, we talked about him in the kick a couple weeks back. Great runner out of Ole Miss. He, and he was trying to make the world's team in the 1500s. A fantastic mullet, fantastic mustache, uh, but just didn't make it um, at, in the top three, at least, in this race. Um, so uh, moving on with the USA's, a lot of other stories. What stood out to you from being there over the four-day stretch? Oh, my gosh. There were so many things going on. But um, I would say one of the things uh, is Molly Huddle. She ran the 10,000 meters and won um, on Thursday. And then she turned around and ran the 5,000 meters on Friday and she placed third, so she claimed two spots on the world championships team, um, which is incredible given heat and yeah. the short turnaround. And she's and planning on doing both for world. Yeah, she'll yeah. be doing both in London, which in August is when the world championships are. Right. So, um, our friend Nick Simmons, um, he competed. We had I talked with him on the podcast recently. Um, it's his last competitive year on the track, and it turns out this was his last competitive event um, on the track. He was in the 800 on Thursday, didn't get out of qualifying rounds, but um, you you caught up with him, and he he did have this to say about you know what he was able to do with his career and uh, finishing in Sacramento this weekend. I did myself justice. All you can do is play the cards that you're dealt. I'm a short, stocky kid from Boise, Idaho that went to a D3 school and ended up being ranked number two in the world, finishing fifth in the Olympics. I think I played my hand about as well as one can. So that was Nick after the event. He actually did have an announcement for what's to come with him, and it's not on the track, right, Aaron? That's correct. Uh, He said he now wants to train for a marathon, so he's going to be doing the Honolulu Marathon, he says, in December, which should be interesting. You know, two-time Olympian in 800 meters is 
going to attempt a marathon. He said his longest run of his life so far has been 13 miles. So okay. he's got some work ahead of him. <laughs> he's got some work. He's got some work. Um, but And it's a little longer than two laps on the track. But uh, A little bit. We, we'll look forward to seeing what his time is in that first 26.2. Um, okay, so that was your weekend in Sacramento. But you were busy. Um, you actually took a drive up to Western States, the ultra race was also happening this weekend because you're crazy and you just wanted to go up and and see this event. Um, (laughs) Give everybody a recap of uh, what kind of happened at um, Western States 100. Yeah, I just couldn't keep myself away from Western (laughs) States. I was so close. I uh, wrapped things up at the track on Saturday and I went up there to see some of the finishers. I didn't get to stay um, very long, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was an interesting year up at Western States. Um, the heat, of course, was a huge factor, um, as was the snow. So it was kind <laughs> of what they were calling it a fire and ice year. So nice. the early miles up up in Squaw were covered in snow, mm-hmm. uh, and the rest of the race was ridiculously hot. So that was interesting um so we saw going into the race jim walmsley was the overwhelming favorite in the men's race um there was a lot of hype surrounding him because especially after last year he took Mm -hmm. a long turn after running well under course record pace for probably more than 80 miles Mm -hmm. um so this year despite all the elements in his way uh he took off again at that same torrid pace uh didn't work out again (laughs) He withdrew from the race at the river crossing, which is right around mile 78, I think. Um, so he kind of just blew up. He said there weren't any excuses. He just couldn't hang on. So uh, the unexpected winner, winner this year was Ryan Sands. He's from South Africa, and he's run Western States a number of times. So he was uh, the first one in. And on the women's side, who was the overall winner? So it was Kat Bradley, who's sort of a new name uh, in ultra running. She's from Boulder, uh, and she's a teacher. She's really young. She's, I think, 23 years old. Um, so that was a really huge breakthrough in her running. Um, and in second, uh, chasing her down was Magdalena Boulay, who is a 2008 Olympic marathoner. Yep. So it's uh, probably very scary for ha- <laughs> having somebody chasing you down who has those credentials in an ultra race. But um, so Magda's become very well known for her huge transition from the top mm-hmm. of road marathoning over to the top of ultra running. Um, and she's still really obviously competitive at age 43. How long was your drive from Sacramento up to that race? Oh, it wasn't very long. It was probably about 30 miles, maybe a little bit less than that. So these people competed and ran three times longer than your drive up yeah, exactly. to the race. And I, I do have one final question because it's it's a big question going on the Runner's World Slack account right now. Um, <laughs> Aaron, what was your first concert that you ever attended? So ever attended with my parents or without my parents? Uh, whatever you prefer to say, I guess. Well, maybe I'll I'll give both because they're equally okay. funny in different okay. ways. <laughs> so the first concert I ever attended with my parents was John Denver. Okay. And I still love John Denver. Okay. That's and that's then, a good one. Okay. I don't see why you'd be. Uh, okay. Go ahead. What's the next? <laughs> that's not embarrassing. I don't no, know. No, I think that's good. Embarrassing. It's pretty legendary. Okay. He is. Yeah. Um, and then my, my first concert without my parents where I went with my friends was Bon Jovi. Mmm. Not. Where did you see that show? Um, in my hometown of Hershey, Pennsylvania. Okay. And, uh, and I'm sure the world needs to know my first concert, as I told our Runner's World Slack account, um, it was the, uh, the Elephant Show. Uh, <laughs> Sherry Which and Graham. I don't Graham. even know what that is. Yeah, it's like an old kid show. I probably messed up. Um, but yeah, um, we'll, we'll put a YouTube uh, video on what that song was. Uh, but yes, uh, not afraid to announce that at all. So, Aaron, thank you for the recap. Thank you for all your work this weekend. Uh, well, thank you. It all right. Was- it was a good, fun, hot time. <laughs> yeah, and get some sleep. I, I know you haven't been sleeping much. We've been putting you to work. That's true. I'm going to go <laughs> take a nap now. All right. Take care. 
Okay, we're almost done here, but before we go for this week, send us your training questions. We'll be holding another training roundtable very soon, and we want to know what you want to know. So are you wondering what makes for the perfect warm-up, or which strength training move will give you the most bang for your burn, or even how to survive the taper? Whatever your query, you can email it to us at rwaudio at rodale.com, tweet us at rwaudio, or you can even leave us a message on our Facebook page at Runner's World Audio. I'm your host, Brian Dalek. I produced this week's show with Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, and Alex Ward. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>